The year is 1986. And the sportos, the motorheads, the geeks, the sluts, the bloods, the wasteoids, the dweebies, the dickheads, they all adore podcasts. The movie? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by my friend, another movie fanatic and a frequent <laughs> critic for the New York Times, Amy Nicholson. Amy, how are you? I am wonderful for being a dweeby. Or am I a wasteoid? <laughs> you know, I don't know what I would be in that mix. I think in high school, I mean, I don't think I was easily characterized. I, I think I was a little bit more of a chameleon than any of those one-word uh, titles would put me in. Well, today you're a sporto. All right, I'll be a sporto. I wish I was a gearhead. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, First Bueller's Day Off is a movie that I think has a really giant cultural legacy because it is a movie that defined my childhood, but also I think a movie that really embraces this idea of this secret thing that we all do, like cutting school, calling in sick to work, and blowing it out, like doing a version of this that no one else has ever done. And I know there have been other movies that have tried or even been in production or or pre-production that tried to capture this, but they never can quite capture it. It's the same energy that Ghostbusters has. It it just is a very specific thing. There's an apex, and I think this movie is it. I don't think it can ever truly be topped. Whoa. Whoa, those are huge words. Those yeah, are parade I mean, words. Those yeah. are, hey, everybody, listen to the Paul Shear parade. You're carrying the really? banner. You're carrying the tuba. You're wearing the lederhosen. Oh, my God. I'm there. Donka shame, baby. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think that there is another, like, day off movie like this. There are so many great actors in this movie, but I think this movie really does come down to chemistry and what the script was versus what it became is actually extremely interesting. And we're going to break down what was left on the cutting room floor, what was changed at the last moment. And I was even surprised this time around by some of the things that I learned. Yeah, me too. I didn't know there was a version of this movie where Ferris Bueller also went to a radio station and like gave a whole speech, lying as he does throughout this movie, that he was going to be the first high school student on the space station. And then they had to cut it because in 1986, there was the Challenger explosion. Oh, wow. Uh, I wonder if we well, should ever do a mini marathon of all the things that were changed because of the Challenger explosion. Well, we it could also really follow that up. It was huge. I mean, yeah, it's it, like people were nervous. I mean, you remember that in Zoolander, they erased the Twin Towers because they didn't want people to be affected by it by seeing it in a film. And you know what? Who You know who probably grew up to be the person who digitally erased them? <laughs> Ferris Bueller, computer prodigy. Honestly, oh. when you watch this movie, drawing naked ladies, drawing his little French girls on the computer, doing anything he could. Why? He's like, oh, no, I didn't get a car. I got a computer. Yeah, congratulations. There's a future Ferris Bueller Who's in Silicon Valley being the richest man alive? Well, I will argue that that uh, computer or that keyboard he has is like $8,000. So he should have gotten a car. Um, we also will go into Reddit theories. Are they real? No, but they are really fun. And they actually tie back to movies that we've done here on the show. American Psycho, Fight Club, Election, and more. 
But you know what, Amy? I have to go. I'm so sorry. Uh, my grandmother has just passed. And so uh, I will let my dad uh, just introduce the show. Bruh, here you go. Unspool it. The year is 1986, and John Hughes is the prom king of Hollywood. He's about to release his sixth hit in three years. If you're counting along, that's 1984's 16 Candles. Then, in 1985, he had The Breakfast Club, National Lampoon's European Vacation, and Weird Science. Then, in 86, Pretty in Pink, and now Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's only in his mid-30s himself, and boy... Hughes is feeling cooler than cool. John Hughes wrote all six of those movies, and he directed four of them, including this one, the one that he will shape into his latest, funniest teen comedy, the movie that counterbalances all the soul-searching sad girl angst. Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, is a happy boy who convinces or forces everybody around him to be happy, too. His best friend Cameron, that's Alan Ruck, is a bit of a mope, but his best girl, Sloane, that's Mia Sarah, She is stone-cold, ice-cold, the chillest girl in school. And together, the three of them skip class, and they rage around Chicago doing all of the stuff teenagers love to do. Eat fancy business lunches, visit art museums, and celebrate German heritage. (laughs) All right, well, now, Ferris's sister, Jeannie, played by Jennifer Grey, is the sad girl who can't even call the cops about a home invasion without getting arrested herself. But you know what? She can suck it. And so can his principal, Ed Rooney, that's Jeffrey Jones, who, like Jeannie, humiliates himself trying to prove that Ferris Bueller is a huge liar, which Ferris is. But so what? The world believes that Ferris is a hero and a kid desperately in need of an organ transplant. And why let a petty thing like the truth ruin a great adventure? Ferris Bueller was released on June 11th, 1986. It only cost $5 million, and it made $70 million just in the United States. That is way better than another Brat Pat movie that was released just a few months earlier that had Sean Penn and Chris Penn and Crispin Glover and Kiefer Sutherland and Mary Stuart Masterson. Do you have any idea what that movie was called? I would be shocked if you did. It was called At Close Range. Oh, Amy, this is right in my wheelhouse. Of course <laughs> I knew that movie. This I is mean, why I love doing this show with you. Oh, yes. I mean, this is 86. I thought you were going to be like, let's talk about the river's edge. Let's get into it. Come on. Well, Paul, you've just established what a cool guy you are, because even though At Close Range had better reviews, it made less than $3 million in theaters. And the only reason I'm bringing it up at all, besides a chance to show us how cool you are, is that it did have one hit thing about it. It had a hit tie-in song that was number one on the Billboard charts the weekend that Ferris Bueller was released. It is by Sean Penn's wife of 10 months, and it is about a man who, like Ferris, tells a thousand lies. It's Madonna and Live to Tell. Oh, that song is a banger. I love it. Here's a thing I want to tell you about At Close Range. I thought it was Sean Penn and Stacey Keach. I didn't realize that it was Sean Penn and Christopher Walken with a mustache. So now there's a reason to revisit it. I mean, this cast is pretty good. I feel like we got to look at At Close Range at one point. (laughs) 
Okay, okay, okay. Mary we could Stuart do a double Masterson? bill. I would do that Come with on. like Taps, early Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, early Rough Edge Brat Pack that kind of has been a little bit forgotten. Also, thank you for giving a shout out to Stacy Keach, brilliant actor. Yes, I sort of feel like never quite got his due, and the idea that you once ranked him higher than meme darling Christopher Walken. I was a big Stacy Keach fan from his TV show, Mike Hammer. That was like a big CBS show that felt like a very adult to me. And I like used to like watch a cool cop show. Welcome to the Keech cast, everybody. We are going to go full Keech. Um, <laughs> this is, Amy, another one of those movies where it is a defining Paul Shear film. This movie is maybe in the top five defining movies of my life. I watched it a million times. I know every line from this movie. Rewatching it for the podcast, I'm doing the movie with it. I love this movie so much that when it came out on pay-per-view, I made a VHS copy of it and I rented it to the teachers at my school. I was the guy who was giving people access to Ferris because people didn't want to pay for the pay-per-view. But I had it. I had it on VHS. I was giving it out. I had two copies of this thing at my house. You were a dub dealer? You were dealing dubs left and right? I was dealing dubs, but I was getting those dubs back. You know, it wasn't for keeps. It was just for borrowing. Um, Was it for Keech? It was. Was it to to rent more Stacey Keech movies? (laughs) It was just to fund my Keech fund. I just put it in my Keech bank. But yeah, this movie is giant to me. I do not come into Ferris at the way you do. And I want to understand the way you do. So I want to ask you just a, a question to get us started. Yeah. When you watch Ferris, do you feel like a Ferris? Do you feel like a Cameron? Where is your heart aligned? When I watched this movie as a kid, I wanted to be Ferris Bueller. I mean, that was who I identified with. I think the reason why I got into so much trouble in sixth grade was because of this movie. When I was dub dealing, I was kind <laughs> of living the life of Ferris Bueller. I was just trying to do these bigger things, make movies with my class, go out and have these adventures. I mean, a lot of this stuff is going to be revolving around movies. But when we went on a field trip with that same class, that sixth grade class, I opened up my room, like my hotel room that I was sharing with another kid. We were in Washington, D.C., into a movie theater and I would charge people at the door. I had bought candy <laughs> from downstairs and we all were watching pay-per-view in my room and then we all got in trouble. So I was that person in that moment. I was the conduit of everyone. I had friends in all different areas and I wanted to be Ferris. I considered myself like Ferris. I longed to find a sweater and a jacket like that. Like that was the apex of cool. I I even had the keyboard. That's the thing I could get, the keyboard. I I had models of the Ferrari. I did it all. Anything I could get to get close to Ferris, I did. And then as life moved on, my biggest goal was to get the soundtrack. There was no soundtrack to this movie. And this movie has an amazing soundtrack. Apparently John Hughes was obsessed with who he was getting for the soundtrack. And there's like a little clip of something that I saw behind the scenes of Matthew Broderick, where he was talking about working with John Hughes. And he said, every day, John Hughes would come to set and be like, we got this band, we got this band. And he goes, I didn't know any of those bands. I heard of a story like that from the reverse, where when Jeffrey Jones was like, oh, I know exactly what corny song we should have him sing in the parade. It's got to be Donka Shane. John Hughes was like, I'm too cool. I've never heard of that song. I don't know what you're talking about. Whoa. <laughs> 
Oh my, and that's such a big song throughout this whole movie. But when LimeWire and Napster first came out, my goal was to make a Ferris Bueller soundtrack. And I burnt it and I was so excited to have the the full Ferris Bueller soundtrack because you could never get it before. And I, I just am obsessed with this movie. It came out really at a moment in my life where it just hit me in the right way. And in a cool way, I know we were making fun of it in the beginning, but like, yeah, he's not doing the typical things that high schoolers do when they cut class. It's epic. It's involved. It actually like throws down the gauntlet and says, no, if you're going to skip school, make it worth it. Right. Like there's that little bit where Jeffrey Jones, as you know, the principal's like, I know where kids go. He's probably in this like two bit pizza palace arcade. And it's like, no, bitch, he's eating pancreas on China. And by the way, when you say Jeffrey Jones says, I know where kids go, it would definitely have a, 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 a rough oh meaning here. Uh, yeah. Google Jeffrey Jones if you don't know what we're talking about. But let's just move on for the sake of this podcast. I do want to call out and just kind of maybe talk about this overall theme of the film, which is a celebration of freedom. And what can we do? Like the world is open to us. And I think that everything I know about John Hughes is he's able to ground something in reality, but at the same time, make these big, fantastical films. And that grounding in reality, these characters that he knows, I think really do a majority of the heavy lifting. Like, we are here for these characters. As a matter of fact, John Hughes said, I know the characters and I know the ending. I don't know what's going to happen in the middle of it. And I think he wrote this entire movie in like 26 days. One of those amazing John Hughes <laughs> stories where he just writes all of his best movies in like 10 days. Yeah. This is like 26 days divided by seven and a half. He claims he wrote it in four days. Oh, and then wow. Kept workshopping it in pre-production and like on set. Well, I mean, even the last line of the movie, he changed on the day, you know, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around a while, you might miss it. It was going to be like life is a carousel. And, you know, it's like this this longer thing that didn't really like work. And he's like, oh, let's change it. But he does seem like he's a director who comes from like, you know, the, the Adam McKay school of directing comedy where people just like try a bunch of improv lines on set and then you figure out what works. You write the thing, you write the scene, you get the idea of it, you know what's happening, but then you're not precious with your words once you get there and you see what your actors are going to bring to the table. They're, they're basically like movies that are like a a function of editing. You wind right. up with like a three-hour cut of Ferris Bueller and then you cut it down to what you think the movie should be based on what, what happened. It, it's half written there. But let me ask you this. Who's the main character of Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh, no. I think I'm walking into a trap. Well, surely it can't be the person whose name is in the title. Well, <laughs> well, here's my issue with it. I was rewatching the movie and I thought to myself, Ferris Bueller is not the main character of this film. Like, he has no arc. Like, there really isn't a story that we're following of Ferris. Like, he doesn't change. He is who he is from beginning to end. There's no real obstacle. I'd argue that Cameron is the main character. Like, Cameron is the one who changes. Cameron is the one who has the obstacles. It's almost as if 
you called Star Wars Han Solo's day out. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, there's an element here that I think is actually really fascinating because we have this lead character. It is Matthew Broderick. It everything about this movie is so much fun, but it doesn't really have the traditional storyline of a movie that would probably be called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's fair. Like, I t- I think I've read this movie kind of likened a lot to a Wile E. Coyote cartoon where it's like Jeffrey Jones is Wile E. Coyote suffering to chase after Ferris, which would mean that Ferris is just the roadrunner who is just a fucking roadrunner who's really, really fast and kind of smarky. Smarky? Right. Is that a word? Smarmy. Snarky. 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 Oh, smarky. He's smarky. Okay. It, that would mean, I guess, that Cameron, I guess I would call him the landscape of the American Southwest, where he just gets like bombed into oblivion repeatedly and has to heal himself. <laughs> well, I also think that to your point earlier, John Hughes is morphing the story, finding what a good movie could be, because I think he had thoughts for why Ferris was doing what he was doing. And it all tied into Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen shows up in the end of the movie in the police precinct. It's kind of a throwaway scene. It's a great scene. I think he's fucking fantastic in this scene. He stayed up for 48 hours to give this kind of groggy, drugged out energy. I just love the way he interacts with Jeannie in that scene. What do you care if your brother ditches school? Why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go? You could ditch. Yeah, I'd get caught. So you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Excuse me? Excuse you. You ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself, a little less time worrying about what your brother does. So, are you ready for this? This whole backstory to Charlie Sheen here? Bring it on, baby. All right. Charlie Sheen's character was named Garth Volbeck. And there's going to be this whole backstory to his character and his family. The Volbecks are the family that Ferris's mom was showing the house to. And if you look closely at the tow truck that tows away Rooney's car, it's Volbeck's wrecking service. And a deleted backstory would show that Ferris and Garth were friends in the eighth grade. And Garth's family is pretty messed up. And Ferris tried to help him be his friend and just kind of get him out of that situation. But it didn't work. Garth eventually dropped out of high school and wound up in this police station next to Jeannie. And that is why Ferris is so intent on giving Cameron a good time. Because he blames himself for not helping Garth when he could have. Oh, so Garth is the guy who he's talking about in like a deleted scene where Ferris is talking about how he used to know a guy who cried himself to sleep every night. Like one of his monologues was about this guy who cried himself to sleep every night. And that's Charlie Sheen. I believe that that was the idea. And then John Hughes is like, this is just too much of a bummer. I think that John Hughes probably was like, we don't need all this plot. This is something that you can talk to people about how to structure a movie. And there are rules, right? But then you watch a movie like this or you watch a movie like Barbie and they're like, fuck those rules. We don't need all this backstory. We get that Cameron's from a bad house or there's something weird going on there, but we don't need to have all these reasons, all these things hanging down. Like it actually, I think, weighs the movie down in a different way. Like we get the end result both ways. You know, I've heard like other stuff that he cut out. Like there used to be this whole big conversation between like Ferris 
and Sloan and Cam, where they were sitting around talking about nuclear winter. You're just sitting around and talking about nuclear winter, as I think actually kids probably did in the 80s. You know, it's that yeah. feeling that I feel like I feel a lot now. We're like, the people in charge are really ruining our lives. And what are we going to do about it? Except now I think I'm old enough that I'm supposed to be one of the people in charge, which still just feels incredibly overwhelming. But that was supposed to be in here too. And then John Hughes is like, let's just keep it light. Let's just keep it light. And what's interesting is when you cut it down to that, you know, what we hear in like the Charlie Sheen scene is instead of being like, the adults are making this world untenable or the adults are bossing us around. It just becomes like, you know what? Yeah. And what are you going to do about it? Like it becomes more proactive. You know, Charlie, she is just telling her it's your problem. If you have the problem, then it is your problem. So what are you going to do about your problem? Right. And, and live the life that you want to live or be in control of what you can be in control of. I think that's one of those self-help tenants, right? Like just worry about what you can control and you have to let everything else go. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's weird. Like, this is really a movie when I think about it. So many of the scenes all the way through are about like, you hurt me and the person being like, well, okay, I don't believe you, but go ahead and do something about it. You know, like when Cameron's in the car in the backseat of the taxi being like, we have to take this car home. We have to take this car home. Right. And Ferris is like, eh. It's getting late, buddy. We better go get the car back home. What do you, we have a few hours. We have until six. I'm sorry. I mean, I know you don't care, but it does mean my ass. You think I don't care? I know you don't care. <gasps> oh, that hurts, Cameron. I mean, it's interesting. Like, it kind of strikes me as harsh, but then it also kind of strikes me as like my favorite advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks. That's her whole thing. Like, you can lay out your complicated dynamic with your mother over the holidays, but you either do something about it or you accept it, which is it going to be? Telling me that your mother is hurting your feelings doesn't help. At the same point, you can also change your relationship to it, right? You're not going to be able to change your mom. Exactly. It is harsh, but I think it's along the lines of what he's trying to do, which is just, no, just have fun, relax. We're already out. Like, just embrace it. That's the goal for Ferris in this day, to just embrace everything. And that's why every ounce of this day is chock full Well, yeah, and that idea of all of these problems being kind of on your shoulders or in your head, I think that is why your point about how Cameron is the main character dovetails into things like people re-editing this movie so that it seems like a movie discovered, like Fight Club, where this is a story about Cameron wrestling with his own problems, his own issues with his dad by creating this fictional roadrunner meep-meeping who's going to meep-meep his way into helping him solve his problems with his dad. You know, and you can hear the rage in here that like when Cameron is yelling at his life over the Fight Club music, it actually works. Like here, take a listen. I am not gonna sit on my ass as the events that affect me unfold to determine the course of my life. I'm gonna take a stand. Who do you love? Who do you love, bitch? I love this and I love that you're going into the Reddit world, because this movie has been picked (laughs) apart in the Reddit world. And I'm going to get into some of my favorite ones as well. But let's talk about this idea that this is a Cameron fantasy, right? This is a, a world in which Cameron creates this guy. And, and also I think part of that Reddit fantasy, this fight club version is that he also has a crush on Sloan uh, at school, but he won't even allow himself in the fantasy to get close to someone, but he can be like 
one degree of separation from her. I mean, that fits. Like, he and Sloane have some kind of strange dynamic when they're together. Like, I saw yes. the old interview where Matthew Broderick was, like, talking to Mia Sarah and to, and to Alan on set. And he was like, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, there's a weird sexual chemistry between the two of them. And Mia Sarah seems like she feels like there isn't, but she kind of goes along with it. Like, yeah, they're united, honestly, in this movie. What we see is, like, the two of them united in this idea of being dragged along in the back of a chariot pulled by Ferris Bueller through their life. Not that they're in a backseat of their own life, but he is leading them. And they're not really having too much of a say. But I do think that there are things to kind of help push that narrative forward. That moment where they're walking alone in the city during the parade when Ferris is on the float. And they're worried that he left them. They're like, did he leave us? And it doesn't seem completely impossible. No, and and they're having this conversation that feels very, what is Ferris going to do? Where are we going to be? Like, what's our future? Yeah, and we don't I, want to do anything with our lives. We have no interest. It, there, there's an emptiness there that's kind of scary. And I feel like that moment of real connection couldn't happen with Ferris around because Ferris can't have that nuclear winter conversation. He can't have that conversation about the future. He allows us to know that he can acknowledge it, but he doesn't live in it because he does say that moment. Like He's like, look, what's going to happen is this. I'm going to get a job. He's going to get a job. We'll see each other at nights and on the weekends, and then we're going to go to different colleges, and that will be it. We're going to graduate in a couple of months, and then we'll have the summer. He'll work, and I'll work. We'll see each other at night and on the weekends. Then he'll go to one school, and I'll go to another. Basically, that will be it. Sloane's his bigger problem. She still has another year of high school. How do I deal with that? I was serious when I said I would marry her. I would. He lays it out right there, very clearly. He knows, he he gets it. But he's not going to sit and talk in it. And I think that this moment between Mia Sarah and Alan Ruck, we get to see these two characters kind of acknowledging worry. And, And you probably wouldn't have gotten that with Ferris there. The sexual tension between the two of them I think comes in that one moment where she asks Ferris, where Mia Sarah asks Ferris, did you watch me change by the pool? And he's like, yeah, like he, like, it's just a little weird. That moment is a little weird. <laughs> you know, so I get that sexual tension element to it. They're a little for key swapping. Well, I don't know. Who knows what kids are up to well, these days? Yeah, but there's something there. There's something there that I think he finds her to be really attractive. And Ferris is totally fine with it because I think he's also at peace with who he is and and who they are and, and that relationship. He's not jealous. Well, in that conversation you're talking about, not, not the did you watch me change, but in the one earlier where they're walking along and being like, what is Ferris even going to be? Is he going to wind up in prison? Who knows? There's a line that they also had in there and a little exchange that they wound up cutting after the scene went into test previews which is where Sloane just goes, the future is worse for a boy, isn't it? A girl can always bail out and have a baby and get some guy to support her. And when John Hughes wrote that line, he thought that it would sound like social commentary, I guess, on maybe the lack of options for women or something like that. I'm not entirely sure because Sloane doesn't feel like a person who I think has a lot of deep thoughts about social issues. But maybe I'm just saying that because they cut out her talking about nuclear winter. Who knows? Uh, But when they would run like an edit of the film in test screenings where she had that line, you know, like uh, girls can just bail out and have a baby. People 
hated Sloane in like the test cards. They just like could not get behind her. They thought she was awful. She also had a scene a little bit earlier at the ball game where she's like, can we leave the ball game? I'm bored. It, those two things combined made it look like A, Ferris was like a bossy nightmare and B, she was a drag. Those are almost though two of the lines where I think she shows maybe the most potential of any needs or personality at all. Because I have kind of an issue with this film just in like the Sloan aspect of it. Where it's like Sloan is beautiful and cool and obviously knows Ferris is coming to get her from her day off. She's like getting ready before they even tell her that her grandma is dead. And yet when she shows up, she just kind of hangs there and smiles. And like when people seem stressed, she sort of frowns. And when it's time to smile, she smiles. And when it's time to like gang up on Cameron, she gangs up on Cameron. Of all of his female characters that John Hughes wrote, she's the one that I just really can't get like a bead on. Sometimes I watch this movie and I'm like, is it just me? Like, do I just feel like Sloane, if I met her in real life, would be a mean girl who would not be very nice to me? Because of anybody in this movie, I'm probably closer to like, gummy bear girl on the school bus who was like, hey, have you been on a school bus? I bet you've never smelled a real school bus before. That's me. I'm not a Sloan. I don't watch this movie and feel like I'm a Ferris or a Sloan. But I don't want to be hard on Sloan because also I feel like Mia Sarah always said that John Hughes wrote Sloan to be basically his wife. This is his relationship with his wife. He met his wife in high school. She was a year younger. He went away to college and left her behind in high school. And then it was like, fuck this, quit college, came home, and he married his Sloan, Nancy. And they were in love for the rest of her life. They got married when she was 19 and he was 20. And so he he clearly loves Sloan, but I'm terrified of Sloan. And I, I don't like her. Well, I think what you're talking about is this idea that this entire movie is on the razor's edge of being fun and being dark and not liking any of these characters, right? One of the original things that was cut from the film was that the way that Ferris Bueller was able to pay for his entire day off was he stole these like bonds from his dad, calls his dad, convinces him to tell him where those bonds were that he had and he steals them and that's how he gets all the money. So at that point you're like, oh, it's a little dicky and you're talking about these other little <laughs> lines. And I, and, I, and I think that, you know, you start to add some real weight, like real world weight to the movie, right? These consequences. And the movie becomes a lot darker. And I think that John Hughes can do that really well, but that's not what this movie is. It makes this movie a drag, ultimately. It's like, it kind of has an element of what I think Dazed and Confused does so well, like that last day of school, that idea of like, where will we be? Who are we going to be? That movie is not this movie. And I don't think it should be this movie. I think that this movie should exist in this way of how could they do all those things? You know, like it, it's fantastical. I mean, another one of the Reddit theories that I actually am convinced is pretty good is that Ferris lives in uh, a Groundhog Day scenario. <laughs> that he has figured out everything. Like we're catching him midway through. That's why he confesses his love for Sloan. And he says, like, will you marry me? That That's another odd moment in the movie. These are like teens, you know? And he's like, will you marry me? But if you buy into the Groundhog Day world of it, he, why it not? makes more sense. Because you yeah. you also are talking to Rooney's secretary, who she's fantastic, uh, Edie McClure, also from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and one of the most famous scenes in, in movie history. But she says to Rooney, she's not sure if Ferris is dating her. 
And that would lead me to believe that maybe this is a newer relationship. So to have Ferris say, will you marry me, only uh, lends credence to the idea that he's living in a groundhog scenario. And every part of the day is perfectly figured out and he can get from place to place to place. But there are these like little uh, little bumps in the road, but he seems to really have navigated everything, looking at his watch, knowing when he needs to be somewhere at some time. I mean, I like that we're kind of now talking about this razor blade edge that the film is walking. Because like maybe a foundational question is, do you think Ferris actually means it and is going to marry Sloan someday? And with John Hughes's own biography... I kind of think that John Hughes thinks maybe. But when I watch the movie, I'm like, girl, do not marry this man. This man will invest all of your savings into like a banana farm and you're going to lose everything. Like a Ferris is dangerous. A Ferris is a life destroyer is how I think about it. What? As an older person, I'm like, a Ferris terrifies me. Just a He doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't get caught. I mean, they they edited it out, out, but I feel it under the surface. They edited out him stealing the bonds, but I know this guy is a bond stealer. Like I just know. You, you can tell. <laughs> I think Ferris is impulsive. Ferris wants to feel. And I think he's a person who is into big love, big heartbreak, big everything. So in that moment, yes, he wants to marry Sloan. Will that be the same tomorrow? I don't know. Like he wants to talk to kids in school, kind of further this idea like that he might be sick. And by doing that, he's gaining sympathy and gaining friends. But it's it's interesting that someone this popular, this self-assured, this smart is going to concern himself with doing that kind of groundwork. It's almost like a presidential candidate going out and doing a non-photo op real interaction with like real people, right? It's like it he's still working it. Like he's a senior. He doesn't need to be on the phone with people like that. He's like, pass me the phone to somebody else, you know? And you see how that one girl reacts to him. She's like, oh, I want to see you. But she's not like, oh my God, it's Ferris. But there are some people who believe in him wholeheartedly. And I, I think that he's somebody who is desperate to still be liked. And he wants to make everybody feel like they are his best friend. That's true. That is interesting. If you like kind of spin it to see an emptiness inside of Ferris, because you would think that a person who is so afraid of actually getting in real trouble has this need to please. Right. There's a certain type of punk like Bender in, in Breakfast Club who skips school and is like, screw you to the principal. And, and Ferris can't do that. He's so determined not to actually be aggressive, rebellious, you know, unlikable, rebellious that he creates like all sorts of jigsaw-esque like answering machine traps and jigsaws and booby puzzles and and mannequins inside of beds. Like he goes through all of this work to keep his nose clean, right? To like stay yeah. polished because he doesn't, he's not the guy who's going to show up and give you like middle fingers in front of the school. He's not going to tag the school. He's going to have other people tag the school on his behalf about what a great guy he is. It's fascinating because like that's what I feel when I watch this movie is I feel like it is so easy to look at this as actually a very complicated character study. Maybe even a, a movie that has like some criticisms in it for Ferris Bueller, like, like here, you know, in the seed with with the guy who's trusting for five bucks he can buy his soul and like he'll protect the car. Hey, how you doing? You speak English? Oh, uh, what country do you think this is? And I want to read that scene as like, is Ferris being portrayed also as like kind of a a fatuous neighborhood guy. You know, like John Hughes would make jokes that like 
the most ethnic thing in his neighborhood, you know, in a neighborhood a lot like this, was mac and cheese, that that was considered a foreign. And like, is that a joke on that? Or are we absolutely just to do like 180 degrees opposite and not think of any of this at all? And I really honestly don't know. Well, I mean, I think that you also see that with his sister because she has the same line when she is calling the cops. She's like, speak it in English. Oh, and yeah. This, I, right? Like they both are I blame very- the parents. The parents who, by the way, were two single actors who met doing this movie, fell in love and got married. I love these two. Uh, Wait, as were Jennifer Grey and Matthew Broderick, fell in love during this movie, got engaged, didn't get married. See, there's a a street sense that Ferris Bueller doesn't have, right? Like giving his car there, parking it there. He's not positive about that. Even in the French restaurant, there's a deleted scene where he orders something in French off the menu and they deliver it to him and they eat it. It's disgusting. And they find out it was like sweetbreads, which is, you know, a disgusting part of the animal. Hey, I kind of like sweetbreads. All right, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> and But they didn't want to put that in the movie because they didn't want the waiter to get one up on Ferris. But Yeah, but you hear that little joke about it where he's like, we ate pancreas. Oh, so they wouldn't let the waiter get payback because I kind of hate how mean he is to the waiter. Like, not only is he just like jerking the guy around just because he's like convinced that he is superior and should never take gruff from a working man. I've had enough of this horsing around. Give me the phone back. You touch me, I yell rat. There's another phone around here somewhere. Find it. Wonderful. I weep for the future. Okay, Ferris, can we just let it go, please? A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm going to get busted, it is not going to be by a guy like that. Even after he wins and he gets a seat at the table, clearly not being the sausage king of Chicago, he's still insulting the guy. He's still just digging at him. I appreciate your understanding. Don't think twice. It's understanding that makes it possible for people like us to tolerate a person like yourself. Thank you. Don't mention it. But at the end of the day, the working class does get one over on Ferris because they destroy the car. Oh, by the way, that's another uh, tip of the hat to the Groundhog Day. Because at one point, Ferris turns to the camera and goes, this is the part where Cameron freaks out. And the idea that he has lived this day multiple times, he knows, okay, this is the moment where Cameron is going to freak out about the car. Actually, yeah, we should talk about that. Because I, when you briefly said a bit a minute ago that like, yes, Ferris can talk about what he thinks the future is going to be, but not to his friends. He can only talk to us. Right. It felt like a really shocking cinematic trope that Ferris kept talking to the audience. Like when this movie came out, it was all people kept talking about is like he's breaking the fourth wall. He's breaking the fourth wall which was a thing that really hadn't happened in movies kind of going back to Alfie, like 20 years before, you know, like Alfie, yeah. the great Michael Caine is a rogue movie where it starts with this. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. My name is... Alfie. Alfie. A married woman, see? They're every one of them in need of a good laugh. If they've never striped their husbands. I always say, make a married woman laugh and you're halfway there with her. Of course. It don't work with a single bird. Start you off on the wrong foot. You get one of them laughing, you won't get nothing else. I mean, Alfie saying hello to the camera is basically a open parentheses capped by Ferris saying goodbye at the end of this movie. You're still here? It's over. Go home. 
But yeah, like people were just wondering how on earth is this screenplay even going to pull this off? And part of why John Hughes pursued Matthew Broderick, and John Hughes is not a guy who pursues actors. Like John Hughes, we have to just say, like he is a real sensitive kind of teenager mindset his whole life, like so anti-authority, held grudges forever, apparently like wrote this initially with Anthony Michael Hall in mind. But when Anthony Michael Hall was too busy to play Ferris, he in essence, never talked to Anthony Michael Hall again for the rest of his life. Like oh, that's kind yes. of the personality of John Hughes. Same thing with Bill Paxton, right? Like his, he offered Bill Paxton the role of the garage attendant because he'd worked with him on Weird Science. Paxton turned it down because he's like, oh, that's kind of too small. Hughes never offered him another role again. Oh my God. Like when you are this successful at this point in your career and you're holding grudges like that, there's something about you that has never and did never, I think, grow up. Because from what I've heard, post-Ferris, John Hughes got even worse. I mean, he has a very complicated relationship with Molly Ringwald. I, I don't even think I can do it its full service in like this quick conversation. But there was talk that Molly Ringwald was supposed to be Sloan. But, you know, John Hughes came out and said, no, Mia Sarah has more elegance than Molly Ringwald. But Molly Ringwald said, oh, no, John told me that the part wasn't big enough for me. So it's like there was a protective kind of interesting relationship of like what she could do and what she couldn't do in his movies. There is a lot there. And she said a lot about that as well. I mean, this is absolutely no shade to me if Sarah, who is, of course, the most beautiful and coolest looking girl in the world. And if anybody could snap. Oh, my God. I was in love with Mia Sarah. So much so that I just saw her at an event and she looks exactly the same. And every part of that, like childhood, like crush is like, oh, my God. But but you can picture like Molly Ringwald sitting in a car in a fringe jacket, not saying a word and having a full interior life. And I mm. I don't feel that quite in this version of Sloan. I want to go into this, too, because we're talking about this idea. The movie's on this razor's edge of these characters. Are these characters perfectly cast? I think so. I think that in many respects, Alan Ruck is a perfect Cameron. He's kind of this guy who is not aggressively a nerd and he's not aggressively cool. He can kind of go either way. And I think that that's actually really good for the film. Like he's kind of in the middle. I think that Mia Sara, to your point, I think that she probably is a little bit more arm candy-like and less of a three-dimensional character. But really what I want to talk about is Ferris because the casting of Ferris is extremely complex. People who auditioned for it, Rob Lowe, John Cusack, Jim Carrey, Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr., Michael J. Fox, right? There are all these people that embody an element of Ferris. And when I was a kid, I loved Matthew Broderick. And I have to tell you, one of the great disappointments of my life has been realizing that Matthew Broderick is not at all Ferris Bueller. No, yeah. Even Jennifer Grey dating him at this period was like, he's just a cranky old guy. Like he is basically... You know how he looks when he picks her up as the dad? Like, he's, yeah. he in his own skin, he looks like three kids in a trench coat. He yes. sort of was that, a kid who wanted to be a granky old man in a trench coat. I think you needed an actor to kind of walk this line. Because he is somebody that you believe, but he can play these real moments. Michael J. Fox would have been really interesting, right? Because it's kind of him at his height. And we've we've seen him do this. But he might not have been as dangerous. There's an element of Ferris Bueller that's a little dangerous. Like you look at Matthew Broderick and that that age, that want to be older, like 
there's an edge to him, right? There is an edge. All these things we've talked about, being a dick to these people, speak English, leaving his friends and just disappearing to go on the parade float. His absolute apathy towards geopolitics. I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They could be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. That edge, that edge. I don't know how everybody else would do it. But I do know that Ferris is, I think, better as an actor embodying someone who is like Ferris than an actor who is like Ferris getting the part of Ferris. Yeah. And this is probably where we should point out that, like, at this point in his career, Matthew Broderick already has a Tony. I think it was the second youngest Tony winner at the time for uh, a Neil Simon play he did. And so because he was doing Neil Simon plays on Broadway, like, he was the guy who could also handle this, like, two-camera audience stuff. You know, that's a huge trope in theater, Neil Simon. And you can hear him doing it here. How am I ever going to play for the Yankees with a name like Eugene Morris Jerome? You got to be a Tony or Frankie or Joe. Only I was born Italian. All the best Yankees are Italian. My mother makes spaghetti with ketchup. What chance do I have? I mean, that that was you know, in many respects, another play that I loved as a kid. And I got to see, uh, I think it was Broadway Bound, the third one in that series. Yeah, like he had that energy of he'll let you in. He's almost above the movie. So when I say like, who's the lead character in the movie? He's kind of like our our town, even though it is his story or it's not his story. He's like, he's the ringleader. He's running the show. And I feel like that, also distances us from him a little bit in watching the film. We love Ferris Bueller, but we love him because he's our MC of the night. Oh, that's so fascinating. Because I was thinking when I was getting ready for this, that it hadn't occurred to me that Jennifer Grey is Joel Grey's daughter. You know, the the, mm. the MC in Cabaret. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I somehow had never known this my entire life. It's like, oh, wow. I love that MC to MC connection and the Our Town connection because that's the way that John Hughes talks about this town, about like Shermer, Illinois, like his made up town. Like the way that he describes the movies he set in Shermer are basically like he knows all of these characters. He knows how this whole town works. He knows that all of the characters know each other. Like to him, this is a living ecosphere that whenever he needed to be creative, he could mentally go inside Shermer and see what all of this entire city that he had created in his head, what everybody was up to. To me, that's like a level of imagination. None of this was separate to him. It was all kind of like a snow globe populated by his characters. I love that. And maybe that's why he took these rejections so personally. It's like, it wasn't, I'm not going to be in your movie. It's like, I won't be in your life. Yeah, because it was his life. Like, there's this guy, Ed McNally, who stepped forward and he's like, hey, John Hughes grew up on my street. And I think I'm Ferris Bueller. Like, when I was growing up as a kid... I skipped school, not nine times. Nine times is for babies like Ferris. I skipped school 27 times. I actually did the rewinding the odometer trick on my dad's purple Cadillac. And my best friend growing up was named Bueller. Like, I am definitely Ferris Bueller. And it's funny because one of the interesting links in history is that this guy, Ed McNally, grew up to be a speechwriter for Barbara Bush and is responsible for this part of Ferris Bueller entering like the lexicon. One of the reasons I made the most important decision of my life to marry George Bush is because he made me laugh. 
It's true, sometimes we laugh through our tears, but that shared laughter has been one of our strongest bonds. Find the joy in life, because as Ferris Bueller said on his day off, <laughs> life moves pretty fast, and you don't stop and look around once in a while, you're going to miss it. And I think this is kind of the thing that tortures Matthew Broderick, because Matthew Broderick is forever defined as Ferris Bueller. Well, yes. And like watching Ferris right after election, doesn't it make even more sense why he would be in election? Like his character in election is the anti-Ferris Bueller. He is the principal. He is the guy making the threat, saying, I'm going to ruin this person's life. Something's going on, God damn it. And I'm going to find out what it is. I'm going to catch this kid and I'm going to put one hell of a dent in his future. Fifteen years from now, when he looks back on the ruin his life's become, he is going to remember Edward Rooney. But to your point, it's also the Ferris Bueller that buys a banana farm, right? His life doesn't turn out good. Like, he has been burnt out. This is another one of the Reddit theories that Ferris Bueller fails, he changes his name, he moves to his town, he becomes the principal, you know. um, Because why leave the place where you were the coolest guy on earth? But I will argue that... There definitely is some Ferris Bueller DNA in election because that moment when he drives that sports car, he looks like Ferris Bueller. I'm talking about in election, you know, after he. Oh, right. That little Italian fantasy segment. Yes. That moment is Ferris. That's like an adult Ferris. And it's like, whoa, you have to imagine that Alexander Payne understood that on some level. Right. This is what I was saying the whole episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. In my opinion, I think the reason why he is doing that is to show a life force, right? And the minute we see that kind of life force with Matthew Broderick in that car, we go, Ferris, like, he's alive again. Like, we've seen this guy in his jackets and his tan grossness. When you see that light in his eye, we are all on board and we all are back to Ferris. Let me throw another theory at you that I didn't really hear before, and I thought it was great. Do you think that Ferris fucked Cameron's mom? What? Yes. So let me walk you through this uh, Reddit theory that I read that I liked. Ferris had a secret relationship with Cameron's mother, and that was Ferris Bueller's first true love. But Cameron's mother ended the relationship because she believed it could never work and decided to stick it out in her unhappy life with her abusive and neglecting husband. Cameron's father found out about it and is clinging on to the last strands of his saneness, which would end in dire consequences, not just for Cameron and his mother, but the entire Bueller family. Cameron is sick all the time because of his rough home life, right? And he's having more sick days because... You know, his mom's situation with her dad is kind of worsened. And the first phone call we're introduced to this in detail, Ferris asks Cameron, is your mother around? Why would Ferris be so concerned about Cameron's mother, right? Uh, His dad would be more understandable. And the final reason is, you know, maybe the reason why Ferris is talking about marriage is because he had his heart broken by a lover who couldn't commit. And now he's trying to get someone to commit to him. So he's dealing with a heartbreak. I don't know. (laughs) And maybe... When Cameron's making sure. that that uh, that plea, that monologue at the end about confronting his dad, it's not about like wrecking the car, stealing the car. It's like saying, I know 
that mom had an affair with Ferris. And I'm going to, I'm going to blow that up. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'll counterbalance that by playing this clip of, of Broderick and Ruck on the set talking about their idea of what Cameron is going through on the inside. How do you like the part of Cameron? Have you enjoyed playing it so far? <laughs> very much so. I've enjoyed playing the part of Cameron very much. Um, because he's nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald. I think that's what I like best about him. I think he's a little like Lee Harvey Oswald. No, nothing like. I like the Lee Harvey Oswald theory because, honestly, this movie has so many weird connections to the presidency and presidential things. I mean, not just like the Barbara Bush speech of it all, but like the very existence of Ben Stein in this movie. You know, Ben Stein, uh, who was a political speechwriter, top in his class at Yale Law School, was the guy who wrote this speech for President Nixon. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Oh, wow. I mean, that guy winding up in this movie, like the chain of events that happen in, because of this film, where it's like speechwriter becomes bizarro movie bit player, bizarro movie bit player becomes game show star, game show star introducer, it becomes his own giant career. I mean, going back and listening to this intro of when Ben Stein's money made my brain explode. We want the funk. Give up the funk. I'm Ben Stein, and today I'm going to turn this mother out by putting $5,000 of my money on giving these key funkadelic all-stars a chance to take it all away from me if they're smart enough. So in a way, you could say there's a direct line from Nixon resigning to the Jimmy Kimmel universe. Mind-blowing. But also, like, when Ben Stein pops up in this movie, you know, he's giving this speech Everybody's zoning out. He's like droning on and on and on in class, you know, about voodoo economics. On the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. And I have to say there's something about watching a bunch of people not care about Reagan's economic system in the 80s that now when we are living in the wreckage of Reagan's economic system in the 2020s is like breaking my heart. And I just want Christy Swanson or any of the kids in that classroom to say, oh, we should actually wake up and care about this because of these economic policies right now that actually Ben Stein really likes. Everything will be destroyed in America. <laughs> wow. All right. I like this. I mean, I it's, just was going to call out the fact that I thought it was cool that Del Close was another one of the teachers, but I did not realize how deep it went. Oh, that's true. Shout out who Del Close is, by the way. Lovely bit of comedy importance here. Yeah, Del Close obviously is an amazing actor and a writer, but really, he is the person responsible for establishing improv as a unique art form in its own right. I mean, he is the person who's trained... Every person who came out of Chicago, he is, you know, one of the biggest influences on taking the idea of like improv theater games and making it into something that was actually theater worthy and just unbelievable in so many ways that we can't do all justice here. But it's it's great to see him here in this movie um, representing Chicago, a movie that is, you know, this movie is a love letter to Chicago. I mean, everything about it, which makes it odd that. In a movie that is a love letter to Chicago, the one thing that's not a love letter to Chicago, Ferris's house, which is in L.A. 
horse you know upon horse. It looks like such a Shermer house. We're talking about these this Shermer world, but that is an LA uh, an LA house. <laughs> yeah, I think they're having problems with the seasons. That John Hughes was like, this movie has to be set in the spring, but they had to shoot it during fall in Chicago as long as they could, where they're like painting red leaves green to make it look more spring-like. And then finally they're like, okay, we just have to move to LA. We can't do this anymore. And by the way, that's the reason why the scenes in the room, right? The, uh, it's Ferris's bedroom. Those were the first and last scenes. So the beginning and the end of the movie were shot at the end of the movie. So that self-assured nature, that talking to camera that we're talking about, that, that ability to project Ferris in all of his glory came after shooting the entire movie. Actually, really, I think that actually makes the opening a lot stronger because he seems so at ease. The movie didn't start off that way. Uh, you know, it wasn't the first day of filming, which I think is really good for a movie like this, you know, where we have an our town narrator. You just made me try to think of an, a way of turning Ferris Buellerness into an adjective. And all I can think <laughs> of is ferocity. Does that work? Ferocity. Oh, look, we already created schmarmy and ferocity, <laughs> so I think we should take it. Um, and you know, dub dealing? Has that been used before? <laughs> dub dealing? I don't know if dub dealing has been used. The other thing about this movie that I think gives it like a surreal nature is that these actors are nowhere near their characters' ages, right? So we, we understand Ferris to be a senior, uh, Mia Sarah to be uh, a junior, and Alan Ruck, I think, also a senior. Broderick, 24. Alan Ruck, 29. Jennifer Grey, Jeannie, 26. Like, they are old, but they're also contemporaries of that age. So when you're looking at them, they, it's not like one is 29 and the other one is 15. But it does explain to me why John Candy uh, got far in the audition process for Cameron. Did not get it. I mean, oh how God. weird would that have been? <laughs> I can't imagine that at all. I think John Candy would be fantastic. Like, what we know of John Candy and that ability to play the way that he is played, that sad clown version of him, I, I love that casting. It's not right. But it, like he could do it. I don't think it would have looked right. That's fair. That's fair. And I guess also when you think about the ages like that, it makes sense. Kind of what Mia Sarah has described, because she was the youngest person on set. I think she might have only been 18. And she said that it was unusual. Like she was expecting that she would show up on set and it would be like what she had heard the other John Hughes movies had been like, where everybody becomes this family, everybody pals around, it's super close. But apparently on this set, like John Hughes did not really make that adopted family feel that he that he done, had done with the earlier films. So he kind of kept everybody a little bit at a distance. Like he didn't turn it into like a cult of personality surrounding himself as like head cool guy that they just kind mm. of showed up and everybody did their work and then they went home. And that the tenor of that is a little bit maybe why, why after this, John Hughes was like, you know what? I'm done with kids. Like he stopped here. This is the end of him being like the high school king. And now after this, he like goes on and he does like planes, trains and automobiles and he grows up a little bit. Like I think he told people at the time that he was just tired of going down the same old high school halls, but it feels like a break, right? It feels kind of like he did it. He formed his cool kids click. He tried to do it again and it kind of emotionally didn't feel as fulfilling. And he's like, all right, well, we're good. We're in, we're out. I'm done. Really interesting. I think that maybe he couldn't also be the head of the cool kids when he has an actor who's almost 30. By the way, John Candy would have been 35 uh, roughly you know, at this only point. only twice the age of a high school student. You know, but that's not to say there weren't kids in this movie. Most notably, every kid that you see in the high school they are real high school kids. They, they shot in that high school, real high school kids. Also, Ferris 
had two other siblings in the house. If you look at his dad's office, right behind him at his desk, uh, there is a picture of the family with two more kids. And in the original trailer, there's another kid in the trailer. So they just cut and edited these kids out. Wow. I mean, I kind of believe that Ferris might have smothered them in their beds so that he could be the best pig, the best pig (laughs) in the family, the best prize pig with his little blue ribbon. Now, Amy, I know that we're drawing all these connections and talking to the camera and all this sort of stuff. And you haven't brought up the other connection to another unspooled film that we recently did. Another Reddit that is wild online is that Ferris Bueller is Patrick Bateman. <laughs> yes, I would buy that in a heartbeat. Now, why would you buy that? Why, why? You think because he's obsessed with like uh, things and people? I don't know. Like, why do you see it? I, I find that one to be a harder to believe. Actually, wait, I laughed because I wanted to believe it. But now that I take it back, Patrick Bateman does not have Ferris Bueller's charisma. I think he's much more likely to grow up to be the Wolf of Wall Street. Okay, well, I buy that. Here are at least the theories of why Ferris is like Patrick Bateman. Amazing talent in manipulating others. Appreciation for expensive luxuries, but contempt for anyone who enjoys their luxuries. Appreciation for exclusive restaurants. Uh, devious talent for getting seats in them. Enjoyment of pancreas as a lunch entree. <laughs> Propensity for unprovoked violent acts, like violently slapping Cameron when he does not do the Rooney call correctly. Bizarre music appreciation. Ferris has an uncharacteristically high-end stereo setup in his room. Carve an amp for a teenager, just like Patrick has. Self-indulgent shower scenes both films, and an indifference to death. He's willing to fake a death to get Sloan out of school. Okay, they had me at pancreas and shower and stereo system. (laughs) But if we're going to talk weird music, to me, the weirdest music in this movie is the song cue that like John Hughes bizarrely decides to play over the scene where, where finally, finally, Cameron steps forward and says, I am my own man. I'm taking a stand. I'm going to do this on my own. The music here is so dopey. I could have stopped you. It is possible to stop Mr. Ferris Bueller, you know. No, I want it, I'm gonna take it. That's it. When Morris comes home, he and I will just have a little chat. It's cool. No, it's gonna be good. Thanks anyway. I agree with that. Like, yes, you are right. But God damn it, it works. It like it, it like and I think that like John Hughes had that dopey music in all of his movies. I think John Hughes is aware of like the right notes to give you an emotional connection. Like it's building with that monologue. I I, I love it. I, I know it's dopey, I, I guess, but like it works. It works for me. That that end monologue I think is great. And it and it kind of feels to me like Breakfast Club, like you know, it's like "Don't You Forget About Me" is that's it has the same vibe to it. Did you know, by the way, that Yellow, you know, Yellow, famously of like this song here, the 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California, less than a hundred were made. Father spent three years restoring this car. That they are still making music. God bless their weird little souls. Like, they released an album pretty recently. And if you want to hear a little bit of it, here's a little track. This is the opening track on their new album. It's called Wabba Dubba. 
I mean, isn't it just delightful? Like, they're just ferreting around. They're like, we want to do this music. This is who we are. We're never going to stop. Wabba Dubba never stop, never stopping. I got to tell you, Yellow has a similar vibe to Sparks. When you look at the two guys, they got a little of the same energy to them. Oh, by the way, while we're talking about like random fun facts of people randomly associated with this movie, you know, this German parade that they go to, the Von Steuben Day Parade. I'm not from a town that had a Von Steuben Day Parade, so I didn't Neither know what this I. was. I looked a little bit into it. So it is named in honor of Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. He was one of our founding fathers. Dun, dun, dun. He was the guy who helped train our army during the Revolutionary War. He may have been as openly gay as somebody could have been at the time of the Revolutionary War. Like he was known for having several male secretaries that he adopted, that he kind of adopted as his heirs and called his sons. But it was his way at the time of being legally bound, of kind of forming, I guess, the closest thing to like, a marriage bond as you could by adopting a son. That sequence I always thought was shot during a real parade. I I just assumed like they got in there because it feels so alive. Like the way that they're getting all those shots of people like dancing and not the choreographed line that moves down. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty badass move when they all move like that on the side. I think they're doing Thriller, or they're doing like a lame version of Thriller that I learned, which is like a, most of the steps, kind of. Probably not the hands up, right? They're not doing like the the zombie hands. Or the mom. <laughs> um, but the construction worker, the window washer, those people had nothing to do with the film. They were just dancing to the music that was being played when they were shooting it. Because uh, this didn't take place on one day. This is multiple days of filming. Some of it during the parade, some of it when they were just like, will you show up and help us fake a parade? And more people showed up for the fake parade than the real parade. I mean, they literally had radio announcements like, come on down and be in a John Hughes movie. You know, 10,000 people showed up. That's why it looks so great. You know, it's so funny because when you talk to Matthew Broderick about it, he's like, oh, my, yeah, I was so nervous about it. And like getting the choreography right. I'm like, um, what? What do you mean? <laughs> choreography? Like, 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 like I'm like, it's, it's like pretty, pretty basic. Like, and he's a Broadway star, but he was like nervous about it. But that's again why. <laughs> Ferris Bueller is, and Matthew Broderick are different people. Apparently, Paul McCartney hates this version of, of the song because oh, really? like, they had to add a horn section to this cover of the song because you can see horns on the parade. And so they're like, well, if we have these parades full of horns that you can visually see, we have to have horn music to make us understand why these horns are there in the first place. So they added horns and Paul McCartney hated it. Oh, it's interesting because I've never really been able to find that version of it. That's such an interesting reason why. I just want to go back to where we started. It's important to think about like the way that John Hughes has affected culture. And I, I think I've been thinking about this a lot after Matthew Perry passed away. You know, the, the way that people have reacted to Matthew Perry dying has been really interesting because he is a part of the cultural landscape of America. Like he is one of the most famous TV sitcom characters. And, and it's not like Matthew Perry has died as much as Chandler has died. And, and and that's not to devalue Matthew Perry at all. I'm just saying that like, it's almost a double death, right? In a way. And I was thinking about that in relation to this film, because John Hughes had that same ability to get you so connected to these characters that he created. Characters that you wanted to see again, characters that you love, you know, whether it is Kevin McAllister, whether it is Matthew Broderick, what, you know, these Molly Ringwald, I think is forever defined by John Hughes. And I think it just speaks to his ability to write really 
amazing characters, right? And and there's a quote that he said, you know, it's like, it's not the events that are important. It's the characters going through the events. Therefore, I can make them as full and real as I can. And as far as Ferris, he says, I just wanted to create a character who could handle everyone and everything. And that like basis like of what like his goal was with Ferris is is perfectly achieved. It's like I that's what a kid would want. That's a kid's dream, right? Like I want to be able to do it all. And he created this character that doesn't really exist in this real world. It's not a real character. It's not even something you could be aspirational towards. Life doesn't even work well around him. He works life around him. I find his ability to create characters at the root of why he is so successful and so beloved, John Hughes. And and it's a shame we didn't get more of him. He also uh, died very young. But these characters are forever cemented. Like, yes, we love Matthew Broderick in War Games, but we'll always remember Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller. We, like, I think it's hard to not think of John Candy and not think of him in his planes, trains, and automobiles outfit. You know, same thing with Macaulay Culkin. It's these characters that we just there defined what people sometimes do in eight or 10 years of a sitcom. He was able to do in 90 minutes with characters that we only met once that he never really went to the well and reused. And I, and I think that that's really impressive. No, you're right. I love the way that you phrase that. And I love that one of the strongest testaments to his ability to do more in one movie than people could do with a lifetime of putting characters on TV it's almost too neat of a bow to put on this is that they tried to do a Ferris Bueller TV show oh. where in the opening moments of the TV pilot that the TV Ferris chainsaws a stand in of movie Ferris in half. And it's like, I'm my own man, which we're going to play it. Don't worry, you'll get to hear it. But I want to say what you'll also hear at the end of this clip is the actress that they cast to play Jeannie, who is never associated with this, Jennifer Aniston. Yep. I'm Ferris Bueller, and I've never changed mine. Once they put me up on the big screen, it was out of the question. But come on. Matthew Broderick as me? No way. He's too white bread. Too, too dimensional. Too, too tootsie. Goodbye. This is television. This is real. Mom, Dad, does he have to make a racket while I'm curling my lashes? The symmetry of everything was just too perfect. I had to play the Jennifer Aniston of this. And I always felt guilty that I was a Parker Lewis can't lose fan over a Ferris Bueller TV show fan. I mean, if they couldn't hook you, then I know clearly there was something wrong. But Parker Lewis was more Ferris. Anyway, um, I will say one other thing, too. And I just because I I just want to call it out. I think one of the best scenes in this movie, and I know I already talked about it a little bit, is Jennifer Gray's leaving the police station after hooking up with Charlie Sheen. The way that she plays that scene where they're playing the Ushana Genie song underneath it. I don't know. I love I just love it. I feel like she captures like that first kiss teenage awkwardness but trying to be cool but like like it's it's such a flustered fun and alive moment i just it's one of my favorite like again when i think about like favorite scenes of this 
film. It's a small one, but it, it is is one of my favorite scenes of this film. I mean, she is fantastic in this movie. And she's got a lot of growth in this movie, too. She does. And you know what? Whenever she talks, I always think she's honestly usually right. She's at least not wrong. She's at least not wrong here. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe Ferris isn't such a bad guy. After all, I got a car. He got a computer. But still, why should he get to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants? Why should everything work out for him? What makes him so goddamn special? Screw him. And you know what? I wouldn't want to be Ferris Bueller's sister either. Yeah, and, and you know, you talked about, like, this idea that, that Mia Sarah might not have that much going on. And I think that she does. Jeannie has a lot going on. And I think that it's not just accept Ferris because he's cool or she gets in line with him. She finds her own growth, which I think is actually really important. It's like, do you? I always love this thing that I've heard. It's about like competition with people uh, that you're in competition with. Like, you know, in, in the grand scheme of life, you know, like, like keep your eyes on your own paper. Like, don't worry about what they're doing. And, and I feel like that's kind of what she brings to us. Like, just do your thing. Who cares if he's off? You could skip school. All right. Don't worry about it. Like, don't be in competition. Just be yourself. Ferris is Ferris. You be you. And both can exist without the other one eating each other up. You know, I think that that's a, a thing that goes on in all these John Hughes movies. Like, can you accept it? Can you just accept and not, not fight against where things are going? And, and, no better example of that idea of just like giving in and morphing to your situation is present than in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is a movie where it really is one person trying to get home and it doesn't get easy until he finally just goes, fuck it. Okay, I'm here. Let's figure it out. And I think that that's a good lesson learned. And, you know, speaking about this movie and knowing that this is the last teen movie and he goes into that world of planes, trains, and automobiles, I think it might be nice to kick back and and look back at what we were saying about planes, trains last Thanksgiving, because it's a perfect Thanksgiving movie, about those characters and, and how he kind of made his first adult movie. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was released November 25th, 1987, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And uh, I mean, it's a perfect Thanksgiving film. It truly is. And it was, you know, received not as like a perfect movie, but as like pretty darn good. People were like, this is fine. We like it. And the box office was like, yeah, this is fine. We like it. Good for you, John Hughes. But over the years, it has gone from, ah, you're all right, to beloved. I mean, not just as a turning point in John Hughes's career, but as this turning point in John Candy's career too, because this is really the movie where he transitions from like, weirdo spaceballs guy to everyone's <laughs> favorite uncle, which is who he was to me. Yeah, and I think it's due to the fact that John Hughes knew how to tap into the happy, funny, weird side of John Candy, but also to kind of plumb the depths of his sadness. And I've seen movies with John Candy where he went a little bit more in the sad direction. It doesn't really work as well. And I've seen movies where he went a little bit too much in the SCTV direction. And it it also doesn't kind of work that well. That's why I think these John Hughes, John Candy films are perfect. And I just, 
oh, I wish I would have seen more of them. Apparently, he wrote like 25 movies for John Candy that never got made. I mean, he did make Uncle Buck, Only the Lonely and The Great Outdoors. Those were made, but there are so many more out there that he wanted to do. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that partnership continue to blossom. I love doing these John Hughes movies. They're so much fun. It's wild that we've done so many of them and we have yet to do one with Molly Ringwald. Yes. I almost feel like we've been going back in time. We like yeah. started out working our way back in. But you know, talking about going forward, I have an idea to do something that is a film that is all about being defiantly weird and defiantly yourself. Letting your own freak flag, or maybe I will say freak gigantic suit, fly. Because this has been kind of a great fall and winter for concert films. We have the Taylor Swift one that was huge, and I had such a fun time watching it. You had such a fun time skulking in the parking lot. Beyonce, hers is about to come out. But also this fall, they re-released a musical concert film that is just near and dear to everybody's heart. Honestly, probably top five, if not top one, greatest concert film of all time. And I kind of want to do that and then use that as a springboard just to talk about concert films in general. I think we got to do Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. An amazing movie that I just saw and that you know Ferris Bueller definitely went to. The movie came out in 1984 and you know he must have been a Talking Heads fan. I mean, there are things on the wall, I believe, of his room <laughs> that uh, that tells us that he is. Um, yeah, you know Halloween 1985, Ferris was in a giant suit. Oh, man. He probably actually he got the actual... Suits. That man loves wearing oversized suits. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Amy, I'm excited to do that. Uh, Watching that movie now really blew blew my mind. I'm so interested in getting into a a deeper conversation about that and what concert movies are, you know, what they could be and maybe the comeback of them. So um, next week, stop making sense. I don't think you can watch the A24 version of it yet, but it's the same version, just a better better version of it that is out in uh in certain theaters right now yeah go see it big if you have the chance oh my goodness but if not just go see it just go see it exactly so i guess with that there's only one question left why are you still here go go home it's done it's over a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richman, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. 